This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the very niche and kind of geeky details of modern warfare with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to John Arterbury. He's an analyst with his eyes on Yemen and he's going to be telling us all about the situation in Yemen and the crossroads that that war is currently at. Both sides are engaged in peace talks at the moment, trying to work a way out of this horrible, seemingly forgotten war. There are children starving to death, yet the war is underreported here in the West. Consider supporting Popular Front at patreon.com slash popularfront. Also, if you go on the shop, we've restocked the patches and the mugs just in time for Christmas. That is popularfront.bigcartel.com. Maybe if you can go back to the start of the war in Yemen and explain how all this happened, who's involved, that sort of thing. Sure, absolutely. Uh, So today is actually kind of an auspicious day because it marks one year since the death of the former dictator Ali Abdullah Saleh who had ruled Yemen essentially for decades. Um, You can trace a lot of this back essentially to the Arab Spring, initial uprisings that occurred in the capital of Sana'a against Saleh, uh, eventually forced him to essentially step out of power and appoint a gentleman by the name of Mansur Hadi uh, into his former position. What happened in the kind of interceding years between 2012 and when the war started proper 2014 is a little too complicated inside baseball to really break down for a general overview, but a rebel movement that had been kind of fermenting in the country's north, known as the Houthis, used this opportunity in part to project power and project their claims um, and try to get their piece of a pie in a new Yemen, in a post-Saleh Yemen. Eventually, the situation broke down by late 2014, and the Houthis made a push on the capital of Sana'a and wound up seizing it. They put Hadi briefly under house arrest, but in this kind of like fly-by-night escape situation, he fled to the southern city of Aden, which was the former capital of South Yemen. So you wound up with this weird situation where the Houthis were kind of ruling from Sana'a, And then you had the internationally recognized government down in Aden. Now, the Houthis, over the next successive months, beginning in late 2014 into early 2015, essentially began to chase Hadi and the military units that remained loyal to him. And it was at this juncture that Saudi Arabia and a coalition of other Arab nations decided to intervene in what they called Operation Decisive Storm. So the Houthis actually snaked all the way down across kind of central Yemen and reached Aden City proper before the intervention began, um, both with a series of airstrikes and then support to a patchwork network of local militias on the ground. So the Houthis were eventually evicted from Aden. Hadi retained power there, although he wound up kind of operating out of Saudi Arabia a lot, where he's still based out of a lot of his time. Um, And they essentially fought to what is basically a nationwide stalemate. Now, the interesting thing is that during this conflict, um, Ali Abdullah Saleh, the former dictator, actually allied himself with the Houthis, despite having fought, you know, pre-2011, six wars against them. So it was a strange alliance. Uh, It was an uneasy alliance. And it was actually about a year ago from today's recording that that alliance broke down resulting in, of course, the Houthis actually killing Ali Abdullah Saleh. So now where the conflict stands and has stood for the past year is it's more of a classic binary. 
You have the Houthi rebels who hold most of the north of Yemen, including Sana'a still, versus Hadi's internationally recognized government, which is mostly fixated kind of in the south, the southwest. Um, the central areas of Yemen are still contested. And most recently, what we've witnessed is a push by the internationally recognized government on the key port city of Ahodeida, and that's on the western coast. It's actually the main site of food imports into Yemen more broadly. So it's been very contentious both from a political and diplomatic perspective as well as just a humanitarian one in what ramifications fighting around that city will have. So that's kind of where we stand today. And actually, as we're recording, the Houthi delegation is in the air, wheels up from Sana'a in a Kuwaiti airliner headed to Sweden for peace talks with the UN-recognized government of Hadi. And this is perhaps the most optimistic moment of the past year that I think Yemen watchers have observed. Whether any breakthroughs are bound to happen, you know, that's kind of up in the air. Past efforts at peace talks have not been super fruitful or super helpful, so it kind of remains to be seen. But we're definitely at an important juncture in the Yemeni conflict, both in terms militarily around the port city of Hodeida, as well as diplomatically with these peace talks ongoing. Right, and I know this this might sound like a stupid question, but who are the Houthis exactly? Because as far as I understand, it's quite a broad term. So there's definitely one specific Houthi group. Um, they started years ago as a rural movement called the Believing Youth, and they kind of grew up into this more proper rebel movement over the interceding years. Uh, they are Zaidi Shia, so that's a form of Shiism that's kind of unique to northern Yemen. And they hearken back in part to the Zaidi Imamate, the series of Imams that ruled Yemen's north for centuries. So they kind of have that legacy. Um, they are from a province called Sada, which was historically underdeveloped, kind of on the Saudi border. And, you know, a lot of these people, they had very hard scrabble existences for decades and they were marginalized. And they used to have, through their clans, more of an influence on power, but a lot of that was simply erased. Now, again, yeah, you never want to really treat any rebel movement as a monolith, right? Um, so the Houthi family does dominate the Houthi movement, but there are other clans and tribes that, for various reasons, have allied themselves with the Houthis, right? And that's either... You know, they've been marginalized from Sana proper over the past decades. Um, it could be that they are just technocrats or people who were part of the government before the Houthis took over who are still trying to survive. So we see that in part, right? Um, because when the Houthis took Sana and when they took other big cities like Ib, uh, they kept officially the organs of state in power. So... The country of Yemen, in a sense, continues to exist from Houthi-controlled territory. They still have uh, bureaucratic papers and everything with, you know, Yemeni government markings. It just happens to be run by the Houthis. So some of the bureaucrats, the technocrats, some of the military commanders that are fighting on the Houthi side, they might be fairly apolitical or they might be doing it out of survivalism. So certainly we can't paint it with a broad brush and say every single individual is, you know, the Zaidi Shia militant or something. Um, I think that would be a bit short-sighted. So, especially when they were working with Saleh, too, you saw that they are coalition builders. They are pragmatic. Um, the big question, I think, that people have debated in the Yemeni watching circle over the past years is to what degree 
of support the Houthis receive from Iran and whether they comprise some sort of Iranian proxy. And I think it, it's kind of a chicken and egg situation, right? Um, as the Iranians definitely support the Houthis, but which came first, the Houthis or Iranian support? Houthis definitely came sub first, but would they be where they are today without that Iranian support? That's just something I think we can't answer easily. Sure. Well, let's talk about that because I know that, you know, you're saying that Iran is back in the, uh, the Houthis and we know that Saudi Arabia and, you know, by extension, the U.S. is backing the government there. Um, what's the involvement there? What is Saudi up to in Yemen? So Saudi is up to a very large air campaign um, as well as several kind of kinetic on the ground land campaigns. Mostly Saudi forces, more recently at least, have been involved on the northern fronts against the Houthis. Um, so if you pull up a map, it's going to be provinces like Sada, where the Houthis are essentially from, uh, Haja, which is in the northwest, and to a lesser degree, this big kind of deserty area called Al Jauf. Um, so you have Saudi forces there as well as militias that are fighting alongside the Saudis. You have an air campaign that's essentially nationwide over Houthi territory. And then you have Saudi and especially Emirati support more in the country south and southwest. So the push around Hodeidah City that we've seen in the past few months, that's probably steered more by Emirati forces than Saudis. Um, and then, you know, they kind of, both the Saudis and the Emiratis each groom their own loyal military commanders and units within Yemen. So even within that coalition, there's a bit of a divide on the ground in terms of who they're supporting and who they're fighting alongside. From the Iranian perspective, I think involvement in Yemen is a very low-cost, high-reward conflict for them. They provide missiles, ammunition, some advanced weaponry, IEDs, probably naval mines, other kind of equipment like that that's smuggled into Yemen to Houthi forces, probably provide cash, some limited training, intelligence, um, kind of what you, you see similar to what they provide some militias in Iraq, for example. Um, and for them, this is a big headache for the Saudis, right? Because the Houthi heartland is on the Saudi border, essentially. And the Houthis, even today, are still consistently able to cross into Saudi territory and conduct limited raids. And, you know, you wind up with these crazy YouTube videos of barefoot Houthis wearing suit jackets, uh, taking out Saudi MRAPs with SPG-9s or something in Najran province. So the Houthis are able to really harass the Saudis, and then, you know, they'll fire a ballistic missile into Saudi territory periodically. And it really... For the Saudis, they spend a lot much more in terms of men, material, and capital fighting against this, I think, than Iran actually invests into it. Right, but what do the Houthis actually want? Like, I, I know, I understand that there was this, you know, the fight in the government. What, what kind of state do they want to live in? What are they fighting for? I mean, that's a good question. I think that's something that there's not a concise answer for. Um, I think at the maximal position, the Houthis do want to control the levers of power. They do want to control Sana'a in northern Yemen. And I think if they were just left with that, they would probably be happy. I don't think they're going to move against the South right now or try to unify the whole country under their rule. I mean, it's just not possible. Um, but they have increasingly more and more turned to a theocratic form of governance. And again, it's not overt because they do keep this illusion that they're just running the Yemeni state as technocrats. But they are more and more in their rhetoric and kind of their approach and their school books and things like that, 
integrating more classically theoretic theocratic components um, in line with their Zaydi ideology. And that's interesting because I think it will continue trending in that direction. Now, whether they would accept some sort of power sharing agreement or, you know, if they're just offered a position where they can essentially rule Sada province and parts of Haja and Amran nearby and, you know, have members in parliament, maybe that would be okay with them. Um, I think the talks in Sweden will give us a better indication of whether they would ever have that acquiescence. But I think a lot of Yemen watchers would be skeptical. I think the coalition is not in a position in the near future to where it can take Sana or, you know, a city that large under Houthi control. So the Houthis have little incentive to yield it, right? Um, and so basically, I think the Houthi endgame here is to hold as much territory as possible and be left alone and just kind of do their thing. So they want like an autonomous... Yeah, essentially, I think so. Um, kind of like an autonomous territory, just self-administered. And you can see it, too, when they implement their government somewhere. Like I mentioned, they keep these um, these kind of figments of the Yemeni state intact, but they also have a parallel governing structure. They have a series of personnel that are just called mushrafs or supervisors who run what are called squares, so like geographic little areas. And you can kind of think about it like how the cartels in Mexico have plazas that they run, right? It's like a network of businesses or this neighborhood or something, well, each mushref will have kind of behind the scenes this neighborhood that they're in charge of. And from that, they can extort taxes or bribes. They can recruit young men, um, you know, essentially levy forces for the greater Houthi cause. So it's kind of decentralized in that sense. Interesting, like a patchwork. Yeah, absolutely. It is a patchwork. Um, and it's not you know, necessarily this uniformly top-down movement, you do have this top council that's very powerful, but it's also devolving a lot of power locally to pro-Houthi militia leaders as well. So in terms of an endgame, you know, how do you appease that patchwork of of mushrafs, of kind of like informal political leaders? Right, and what are the Houthis' ideology? What What is it like? I know you said it's this very specific sect of uh, Shia Islam, but what do they actually believe? What are their beliefs? It is. So it's a form of Shiism, without getting too into the weeds, that is not in alignment with the orthodoxy that you see practiced in most of the Shia world. It's actually, um, it's closer in some of its practices to Sunni Islam. It's mostly confined to Yemen. I mean, it's elsewhere too, but Yemen is the homeland of Zaydism in the modern world. Um, And it's not, and that's something that should be made clear, is it's not in line with the state-approved Islam of the Islamic Republic of Iran, which is interesting, right? Because they do not look necessarily to the Ayatollahs for final guidance. They are more autonomous from them. Now, there's some arguments that they are changing their theology slowly and surely to become more in line with Iran. Um, I'm not sure I buy that. I think the Zaydis will still probably at the end of the day do what they've always been doing. Um, in terms of the way it's practiced, this is actually very interesting. Yemen, both as a conflict and as a country, is historically less sectarian than Syria or Iraq, for example. Um, so still in Sana'a today, you have mosques where Zaydis and Sunnis will pray side by side or you know frequent the same imam. Um, there is an argument that 
the conflict is becoming more sectarian the longer it drags on. And that's from both sides, right? Not necessarily just one animating it. But I think what they're looking more towards is less less of a deep theological argument, but a government backed by theology. And that would be their their idea of what they call walaya, that focuses on the imamate and kind of resurrecting this religious hereditary rule that existed in pre-modern Yemen up until, you know, the the post-colonial era. Sure. And what I, I've been thinking about this, like, um, what specifically sparked the war? Now, I know you, you explained at the start, but what was it that, what was the straw that broke the camel's back, if you like, in Yemen? I think looking at it from the Houthi perspective, um, and when they did finally take Sana, it was just... I mean, it was a moment of opportunity, right? You have this movement that began in the early 2000s as essentially kind of shepherds and goat herds who were using really old AKs to fight the Yemeni state, and they weren't really getting anywhere in their first few wars. But then successively, their tactics and their abilities kind of improved and developed each war to war over the six successive wars that they fought. So you hit this point in 2014 kind of where anything is possible, right? I mean, you had this national dialogue that was supposed to unite all the different factions, and I think they saw a window of opportunity that they just couldn't let go. You have a movement that just could push to its maximal push, that decided it could probably get away with anything because every other actor was so weak, right? So this is kind of like, it's like the Islamic State of Mosul in 2014, right? You start a year before just picking off these small villages, and suddenly before you know it, you're capturing this prize that you couldn't have anticipated a year before. I don't think if anybody went back and asked the Houthis in 2008 or something like that, do you ever think you'll ever hold Sana? They'd probably think that was a joke, right? Like It probably wasn't even in their, their goals. So how did they do that? How did they manage to take Sana and, and be, build such a big force? Well, they had, I mean, they do have a wellspring of some popularity in Sana, and it was preceded by large popular street protests. And it's also twofold in the sense that Hadi is not the most charismatic or popular guy. Um, the military kind of that he inherited as well from Saleh um, post-2012 was made up as well as from a lot of Saleh loyalists. So Saleh did a very good job over his career of building up these really deep patronage networks. Um, and this is especially true of the military. So when Hadi was left with the reins, he didn't have a lot of support. He didn't have a lot of support domestically. And he didn't have a lot of support from the security architecture of the country either. So it really, I mean, it was effectively a security vacuum, but it was one of those vacuums that's easier to look at in retrospect because the Houthis made a gamble and won, essentially. So what about America's involvement here? You know, I saw the other day and several times before there were horrific war crimes have happened. For example, there was that bus that got hit recently. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, a load of kids died. And I believe that the missile was given to the Saudis who bombed the bus by America. Sure, sure. Um, so the U.S. role in Yemen is essentially twofold. Um, one is basically logistical support to the Saudi coalition. And that's what you see being debated in the, in the Senate most recently with the resolution to open debate on the floor about um, U.S. involvement in the mandate regarding that. And then the other role, which falls, per my understanding, at least more broadly under the war on terror, 
is the kind of anti-Al-Qaeda, anti-Islamic state in Yemen efforts um, that's focused more on the south of the country in non-Houthi territory. So the U.S. involvement kind of mirrors Yemen more broadly, which again is split essentially north and south, both politically and geographically, um, with the south being more counterterrorism, classically defined, and the north being support to the Saudis in the form, especially up till recently, in refueling sorties flying over northern Yemen. So it looks like that has tailed off. It looks like there is a reconsideration in the post-Khashoggi kind of murder atmosphere about the U.S. role. And whether that changes or the Senate passes it, it's not immediately clear, but there's definitely a wellspring, I think, from the American public questioning this role, right? Um, and kind of asking, what is the level of involvement? What does the level of involvement need to be? Why is Saudi Arabia so invested in Yemen? So Saudi, I mean, it's been described before very imprecisely as Saudi and Yemen are kind of like the U.S. and Mexico, right? It's a neighbor that's been more historically underdeveloped. Um, there's a lot of Yemeni diaspora living within Saudi. They've kind of had this historic cultural interchange, but Saudi has always, at least in the past couple centuries, had the upper hand in this relationship in terms of the power dynamic, right? Um, and I think there is kind of this mentality from Riyadh that you can kind of bend Yemen to Saudi will, that it's part of the Arabian Peninsula and that Saudi exercises control over a lot of the Arabian Peninsula, and that Saudi should have a major role. Saudi also gets very concerned about the Iranian support of the Houthis, which again is kind of a catch-22 because I think the more the Saudis fight the Houthis, the more the Iranians invest in the Houthis. So if the Saudis scale back, will the Iranians scale back? I think that's a big question mark, but it's kind of this tit-for-tat. Probably not now. Yeah, they get stuck in this like kind of conflict trap. And then for the Saudis, it's just very much a just persistent frustration, right? Because you have those cross-border raids. You have those short-range ballistic missiles periodically firing into Saudi. Um, it's something that's very easy for the Saudi public to get upset about. And it's something from a national perspective for Saudi to get very prideful about, especially when border posts are burning down. So for Saudi, and I think MBS to a more specific degree, they see this as a war that can be won as a way to demonstrate Saudi potential in the Gulf and as a way to cement Saudi's role more broadly in the Arabian Peninsula. Right, I got you. And what's the situation with uh, with the children and the food situation? I read the other day that literally millions of kids are close to starving to death. There's pictures, videos of these poor children, you know, malnourished, dying, basically. Why is that happening? Yeah, and I think that's actually probably the most important takeaway any listeners can have from this is that food insecurity is just so prevalent and so profound in Yemen that it is on the cusp of being declared a famine. Um, to get into the weeds with that a bit, a lot, a lot of people can die before a famine is declared. And that's just kind of the way that international agencies and reporting kind of define that material. Um, for example, in 2011 in Somalia and in 2017 in Sudan, South Sudan, uh, famine wasn't declared until after thousands and thousands of people have died. And you do have estimates right now in Yemen that perhaps as many as 85,000 children have died from famine um, or hunger, essentially, right? Acute malnutrition. 
And it's kind of a mix of factors. You have fewer food supplies coming into Yemen for several reasons, in part because deliveries are slower to Hodeida, which again is the main kind of importing location for food, for grain to be offloaded into the country, and for food aid more broadly. Um, part of that is because there is this longer process for inspecting v- um, inspecting cargo before it gets to the country, both through the United Nations and through the Arab coalition separately. Part of it is there's greater risk in shipping to Hodeida and shipping in those areas because of the kind of military activity that's going on around it. And then another component that happens is when food is offloaded, it's often smuggled or resold or becomes part of this like food racket that exists across the country, right? So you have World Food Program aid that comes in and then kind of opportunistic, I mean, thieves essentially, right, steal the aid and then resell it at higher prices. Jesus Christ. So it's like a black market just for food. Yeah, there's a complete black market for food. And it again, it goes back and forth with the fact that the Yemeni currency fluctuates so much in value. It actually, it just collapsed completely a couple months ago, and then it's recovered some since, but it makes it hard for the average household to buy food, right? So you can go onto Facebook or, you know, Snapchat stories, and you can find restaurants full of food in Sana or grocery stores full of food, but the fact of the matter is probably 95% of the people can't afford enough food because their currency is worthless, right? So the food's there, they just can't buy it. Exactly, yeah. I mean, government salaries aren't getting paid. Um, the currency is worthless. These, again, these basically cartels will take food aid and resell it because, you know, there's only so many limited economic opportunities in Yemen right now anyway. Um, And then farmers in turn don't get paid enough for their food because not enough people are buying it. So it's just really this vicious cycle. Um, And the only way I think to break it is to really stabilize the country's currency and also flood the country with more food aid. But for several complicated reasons, neither of those are really happening right now. Yes, uh, it's brutal. Um, What about ISIS in Yemen? I've seen a few videos. I know ISIS in Yemen exists. How serious is that a threat to the country? Um, It's not a particularly serious threat. So ISIS in Yemen started in November 2014 as a splinter group from Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, essentially the big AQ franchise in Yemen. Since then, they started out kind of strong. They had some major attacks both against mosques, uh, different security positions, you know, just horrific suicide bombings, kind of standard ISIS fare, um, to the point where AQAP was disgusted by ISIS pretty quickly. And a lot of Yemenis just completely rejected the concept. You know you're evil when Al-Qaeda is just like, nah, too far. Yeah, exactly. They're like, no, nah, I shut this down. It's too much. And that's basically what happened. And we saw that right in other theaters as well. Um, so it kind of mirrored that that kind of habit. Um, But what wound up happening was ISIS started off very ambitious, attacking in Aden and some other urban areas. And then eventually they just kind of got confined to this small tribal area in this province called Al-Baida. So now, as far as people can tell, ISIS is broadly just probably a couple hundred guys living in these mountains. Um, Periodically, you know, they shoot off mortars at little Houthi checkpoints, things like that. Um, they actually put out a photo set, I want to say it was at the end of last year, of two different training camps that they had. And they were kind of infamous because one of the photos just showed all these recruits getting kicked in the groin 
I guess, as a hazing ritual oh, or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah and I it's like that. that should dissuade anybody from joining in the first place, right? Yeah, awful. So they're not really, they're just kind of, they're not really attacking, they're not on anyone's side. They're obviously not with the Houthis, they're not with the state, they're just there, you know, usual ISIS causing trouble. Essentially, yeah. Um, and what happened was they do cooperate in that province of Albeda with AQAP. So for a few years, there was understood to be this kind of like informal detente between the two groups where they wouldn't attack each other. But that kind of broke apart this summer. Um, It's kind of a he said, she said situation. There was some dispute over a checkpoint. Uh, People started shooting at each other. And now for the past, I think, I guess since July, really, they've been capturing each other's fighters putting out little videos and confessions where, you know, one side will make the other say how terrible they are, that sort of thing. So ISIS and AQAP are now finally on bad terms. And it looks like, as of now at least, it's hard to confirm anything, that AQAP probably has a slight upper hand in that situation. So ISIS in Yemen, I mean, confined to one area, fighting with AQAP, making weird photo sets, and then probably getting bombed very quickly thereafter. Right, right. Um, and what what is the war like there? I, I ask because I have seen footage of the mountainous regions where the Houthis were fighting, and it was absolutely unreal. You know, the the just the terrain itself it was it was like something out of Lord of the Rings or something. You know, I mean, what are the forces like? What are the Houthis like? And the government forces? How how well trained, successful? You know, what kind of war is it? I guess. Yeah, it does get very like Dune looking at times. Definitely in some of the northern provinces. And Albeda as well. You have these just massive canyons, wadis, um, very hard to access places, very easily defensible places. I mean, the entire province of Sada that is the Houthi heartland would be a nightmare to invade. You just have caves everywhere, tunnels everywhere, canyons everywhere, blind spots, um, rocky crags. And the Houthis, you know, they can defend those positions with fairly light arms, some anti-tank weapons. Um, for the most part, these days, they're not deploying a lot of heavy armor assets like that. Um, now, along the southwest coast around Hodeida, you do have these kind of coastal plains, right? So it's going to be more just kind of scraggy sand dunes, open sea roads, but still you'll have a lot of cover of brush. And what the Houthis have mastered in that type of theater are just these little in-and-out harassing attacks. So you might have the Arab coalition forces snaking up the coast, but then... The Houthis will come out, peg them with an ATGM shot, and then retreat very quickly through this brush. And what they'll combine that with is a very prolific, very rampant use of IEDs and mines. The Houthis have taken technology from the Iranians in terms of concealing IEDs, similar to how we saw in Iraq. And then they've also taken both Iranian mines as well as just old Soviet ones laying around Yemen and just laid them everywhere. I saw this incredible photo of a Houthi IED and it looked like a boulder, you know, it looked completely like a rock. And when they picked it up underneath, it was hollow with an IED. It was uh, very innovative, you know, in the worst way possible. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they've got the rock ones. Um, There was one recovered fairly recently that looked like a tree stump. And then they'll have little, I suppose, infrared sensors kind of affixed to them that, you know, when somebody comes by, they explode. Or they'll also just rig periodically empty buildings with bombs and... um, you know, have a drone doing some surveillance and detonate it as soon as enemy forces come in. And that's one interesting component of this war is that the Houthis have added bomb dropping 
drones to their arsenal. We're seeing that everywhere now. It's, it's the in thing, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And it doesn't seem like anybody's come up with a great recipe for countering it either. Um, so it's just, just a very easy way to harass people, right? Now, the coalition side is better armed, equipped, and kitted out. Um, you do see MRAPs, you see heavier fighting vehicles, that type of weaponry. With some of the militias, you'll see older Soviet tanks that were Yemen pre-war stocks. But it's still kind of a constellation of militias. I mean, these groups don't all like each other. You have groups that are maybe Southern separatists. You have groups that are Salafis. You have groups that are Muslim Brotherhood affiliated. You have groups that are just fighting basically for their neighborhood. Um, all these groups have been kind of lassoed together under the Arab coalition and made to play nice together. And they don't always play nice either. In the city of Taz, which is a major Houthi front line, one of Yemen's largest cities, you've had infighting between the pro-government groups on and off for months now, years really in some cases. So you do see a lot of these militias that look very similar to, say, militia groups in Damascus circa two or three years ago, right? When those groups would go at each other's throats. Now, they're not necessarily quite well as well armed or kitted out as their Syrian counterparts, but you do have similar dynamics where, yeah, different neighborhoods, different backers, different patrons results in different ideologies and ambitions. So the pro-government side, is that's something that needs to be sorted out even after the war, I think. Yeah, I was going to say, that sounds like once there is eventually peace with the Houthis, I can't imagine that everyone there is going to get along. As as we see often in wars like this, they just start fighting each other. Exactly. And I think that's a big concern among a lot of Yemen watchers and a lot of Yemenis, is that even if these talks in Sweden are successful, and let's say best case scenario, we get some sort of durable ceasefire out of it. And then, I don't know, in the coming year, we eventually ink something that settles down the main cleavage of the war, you're still going to have these southern separatists. You're still going to have different political Islamists of varying stripes. You're still going to have different regional concerns. And for each of these groups, you're still going to have a standing militia or tin, right, depending on where it is. And you have foreign sponsors of some of them um, who, even though they're on the same side, they might not see, to, see eye to eye on, say, the issue of southern Yemeni independence, right? Um, the UAE, for example, has been much more friendly with Southern separatists than the, Sa the Saudi government has. So what happens after the war? Do they keep funding the militias for security purposes? I mean, some of these groups have been very successful fighting Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula in the south. Do they want to keep investing in that? Or do they say, okay, the war is over, let's pack up and go home, and you guys are on your own? Um, and there's... So much money, so many guns going around, I think there's no easy solution to any of this. Well, what do you think? You know, you do a lot of work in this. You're obviously very knowledgeable about everything going on in Yemen. What do you think is the most likely situation to unfold there in the near future? It's hard to say. I mean, a year ago when Saleh died, I think there was some feeling that the Houthis were very emboldened, and that was true. But that at the same time, it would become easier to negotiate at a national level because you just have two forces fighting each other as opposed to Saleh being in there and it being a weird like two and a half way fight. Um, that logic kind of held. I mean, it took a year now to get where we are and we're finally having something resembling peace talks going on. I think there's still more fighting to be done, but I think 
it might be the most dangerous fighting yet. And the risk of that is that if there isn't some sort of ceasefire attempt, if there aren't positive developments from these talks, you might see more fighting around Hodeida, around Hodeida's port, around those areas. And if there's any sort of catastrophe in that region, that's catastrophe for the broader Yemeni nation. I mean, we've already been through going on five years of war now. This country has suffered immensely. The fact that some of the worst fighting could still remain does not bode well for anyone. It doesn't bode well for the country. But I think at the same time, we've hit this point where Syria kind of dying down, so to speak, however you want to define that, and the U.S. and the West looking more broadly at the Arabian Peninsula, we have more international attention than ever on Yemen, too. And I think that is a good thing. I think the international community now has an obligation and a role to help shepherd some sort of peace process into place. And I think if I were to try to be as optimistic as possible, maybe we could see a ceasefire in the next few months. And if that sticks, maybe we could see some stabilization and aid in the currency. And then if that keeps working, maybe we could see livelihoods improve some in Yemen. But beyond that, whether it sticks, whether other actors on a smaller scale abide by it or start fighting each other, I think that's still a big question mark and no one has the answer to that. Sure, yeah, well, here's hoping it, uh, it gets sorted out. I've got one more question for you and you, you just kind of briefly touched on it there. And this is less really your industry and more mine, I guess, like journalism. But why do you think there has been so little attention on Yemen? Now, I know it's not, you know, I see people say no one ever covers Yemen. It's not true. There are some very good journalists and some big publications that do cover Yemen. However, it definitely isn't covered as much as you would expect for such a big war, you know, in comparison to Syria or somewhere like that. Why do you think that is? It's hard to say. I mean, I think Yemen has been... I, even before the war, has been kind of classically mm, underrepresented, right? Because um, it yeah, is like a country. Yeah. yeah, it's just, it's Yemen, right? People kind of look at it like, oh, it's going to be a perennial basket case. You know, <laughs> it didn't have much of a tourist industry or anything before the war. So yeah, it's just been one of those places that um, it's always been off the radar, so to speak. Um, it was overshadowed by Syria in part, but I think actually it is easier to go to a lot of Yemen than, say, rebel-held areas of Syria. The Houthis will, if you know the right people and you play nice with them, they will give you a tour of Houthi area. Um, likewise, the Arab coalition will allow you to embed with them in the south. Um, and then if you're very enterprising, I know Iona Craig, for example, has done just completely solo work in Yemen as well. So it's possible. I think there's less of a demand from editors about it. I don't know if stories don't sell as well, per se. Um, there's less hunger in the West, I think, because, again, it's this place that's been underrepresentative. It's seen as hopeless, whereas Syria or something like that was seen maybe as more of an advanced society before its war, more developed, right? It doesn't intersect with the big American security concerns in the U.S. more recently, right? Yeah, like you said, ISIS there is not exactly even a threat. Yeah, ISIS is not a huge threat. It's nowhere near Israel. Um, we never had a large footprint there like we did in Iraq. Um, and then, you know, Saleh was not, not a household name in the U.S., right? He wasn't like Saddam Hussein, and he didn't become like Assad did. 
um, there's just less appetite. It's a lot less clear, I think, what's happening in Yemen. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I, I think so. You know, I've tried to keep my eye on it for for a few years and like things you're, you're, things you're telling me now are completely new, you know, which m- most conflicts I kind of, you know, talk about on here, I kind of, it's like, yeah, yeah you kind of know it. But this, even for, you know, me, who's a bit of a war freak, you know what I mean? It's, it seems completely out there, you know? No, absolutely. And I think, Two is, and I'm just spitballing here, it might lack a narrative that's easy and familiar for at least Western audiences, right? I think that's the sad reality, actually. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, I mean, when Syria started, you have this very easy narrative of, you know, the protesters who became the rebels versus Assad. And of course, we both know there's a lot of nuance within that, and it's not always clear cut, right? But it could at least be easily digested in a 60 second format like that for a, you know, late night news audience. Exactly. Like you could give people, there's the baddie, there's the goodie, which is absolutely ludicrous, but is actually what most people want to get their head around, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And for Yemen, you just really don't have that. I mean, you had for years and how does it sound explaining that, right? The Houthi Saleh Alliance versus the UN recognized government of this guy you've never heard of. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, what? Yeah, so what you do wind up with is you do wind up with a lot of coverage of the air campaign, the Saudi one, as well as food insecurity. And I would argue those are perhaps the two most pressing concerns in Yemen because from a civilian perspective, those are very immediate and very demanding. Um, so maybe, maybe some of the coverage is justified in the sense that that's what most people digest, but in terms of, yeah, how the war breaks down or what the politics are, it's just, it's not sexy. I think that's the, the kind of story about it. Joe, I think you're right. I think it's really fucking sad, but I actually do think that's right. However, I, you know, I think wherever kids are starving to death should be the main focus, but you're right. It's just. You know, it is. I I often I think there's a a massive problem within my own industry, specifically conflict journalism. And uh, yeah, I think you're probably right there. I think that's what it is. No, absolutely. And I think if you want a a case in point, just look at South Sudan. Right. I mean, it had a major famine just last year and the civil wars probably killed maybe even more than Syria. But yeah, it doesn't have those easy actors. It doesn't have an ISIS and an Assad. So you're right. It's just it's not sexy at the minute. And, you know, anyway, I I don't want to. I, I could talk all day ranting about how much I'm annoyed with <laughs> conflict journalism. But uh, I think that was really good, man. I think we got it. Um, do you have, do you want to say anything else or do you think we're good? No, I just got one little kind of neat anecdote. So Yemen, yeah, Yemen's always, it's been, like I said, kind of underrepresented, kind of forgotten. But it's one of those things that influences us every day, right? So coffee, for example, was popularized by Ottomans who ruled Yemen. Um growing coffee beans in the Yemeni highlands. And they would export it through this really seedy-ass port called Mocha. And the coffee beans that were exported from there had this really rich, kind of chocolatey, velvety taste. And that's where we get, like, the coffee known as Mocha, or Mocha Chinos, in the Western world. So whenever people go into these, like, kind of bougie coffee shops and want a really fancy coffee with, like, a chocolatey aroma... That's actually something that like Yemen gave to us, right? Um, and it's funny because it shows how that country, through its location in the Red Sea and through its influence on the world and our consumption habits and, and a thing as simple as coffee, really influences us all. And I think people, by not paying attention to Yemen, have always taken the country for granted. It's, you know, its contributions are not recognized. So I hope that 
you know, next time you get a coffee or think about a mochaccino or something goofy like that, just think about Yemen or think about donating to a charity, maybe, um, that kind of focuses on food insecurity in Yemen, right? Because, I mean, for the price of a cup of coffee, everybody, if they listen to it, could go a long way towards helping, so. Yeah, I think that's a great message. Definitely consider donating to a charity to help the kids there in, in Yemen, you know, like they're nothing to do with it. It's just caught in the war. Um, John, where can people follow your work? I think it's really important that people like you are around focusing on these uh, lesser reported conflicts. Where can people follow your work and, you know, keep up to date with you? Sure. The best place to follow me is still my Twitter, at John Arterbury. Um, I've been more on a Twitter hiatus lately, but I plan to do some publications soon. So just keep your eyes peeled. Okay, excellent. Thank you very much, mate. That was brilliant. Cool. Appreciate it, Jake. That was John Arterbury talking about the situation in Yemen, the ongoing war and the very little coverage it gets in comparison to conflicts like Syria and Iraq. Like I mentioned a few times in the podcast, there are children literally starving to death in that country because of the war. So do consider going to one of the charities and, you know, donating to try and help these kids in any way. Um, I would suggest savethechildren.org.uk. I spoke to John afterwards and he said that's one of the reliable ones. Of course, there are a lot of, you know, thieves around. So maybe, you know, try one of those more uh, official ones if you like. To support Popular Front, to keep it moving forward, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash popularfront. It's getting to the point now where I'm able to actually go away and do a few things. Because like I said from the start, I want to do documentaries with Popular Front. Um, so yeah, things are definitely moving forward. Patreon.com slash popularfront. This episode was sponsored by the thedefensepost.com, defense with an S. Go there for all your global defense news, analysis, and opinion. It was also sponsored by Atlas News on Instagram. So that's instagram.com slash atlas.news. They're very good at uh, covering breaking news in a different way on Instagram. I think it's quite cool. This episode is also sponsored by a tabletop RPG game called Sigmata. There's a lad on the Popular Front Discord. He showed me it. He's been making it. It's really fucking cool. The idea is it takes place in some kind of alternative 1980s America where there's a fascist regime and an insurgency. He said it's hated by Nazis and tankies in equal zeal. So anything like that seems pretty good to me. Like I said at the start of the episode as well, we've restocked all the merchandise apart from the t-shirts. Sorry they are coming, but you know, it takes a while. Go to popularfront.bigcartel.com for all of that. To keep up to date with Popular Front on social medias, follow me on Twitter at Jake underscore Hanrahan. H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N is how you spell my surname. Or the Popular Front Twitter, which is at popularfrontco. Or on Instagram, we're pretty active there. Go to instagram.com slash popular.front. And please do remember to subscribe and hit the bell on the YouTube because like I said, we're doing a lot more video content now. We've got some more stuff lined up for 2019. It's going to be really good. Go to youtube.com slash popularfront. All of these episodes honestly wouldn't be made possible without the help of the following people. So thank you very much to Axel Iverson. Casey Francis, Chad Walker, Cody Bergerud, Dan Dunham, Daniel Shearer, Darby, Diana Gorvanek, Emily Molly, Fletcher Tate, Jane from the Discord, top lad, Joanne Stocker, Joel Tambusi, 
Lawrence Abrahams, LH, Margaret Bowling, Patrick Bronte, Peter McCormick of the What Bitcoin Did podcast, Ryan Sandercock, Stephen R.D. Henderson and Zachary Hinch. Thank you very much. Music in this episode, as usual, the intro was by an artist called Home and the outro was by my mate Sam. Follow his work at soundcloud.com slash sun dash of dash old. That's S-U-N dash of dash O-L-D, right old, son of old.
اسمع للجبهة شعبية اسمع للجبهة شعبية